Please open your Bibles to James chapter 5. You'll find the bulletin for this morning's message, the notes for this morning's message in the bulletin. You'll find the text on the back of the notes if you don't have a Bible. If you're joining us online, you'll find the bulletin and the notes on our website. This morning, we continue our study of James and we begin the end. Um, Verses 7 through 11 are rounding the corner to the close of the book. James is strong. Striking rebukes are over. His calls to repentance in loud terms have been made. And now he begins to encourage the scattered believers in persevering, living through difficult times, waiting for the return of the Lord. If you remember from way back when we began studying this letter, I suggested to you that its theme was true faith evidencing itself in works relying on the wisdom of God, persevering through life's trials. We're going to see all those themes come back together here this morning. So I'd like to begin by reading verses 7 through 11, having a word of prayer, and then we will begin our study. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remains steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Lord God, I pray that you would help us to receive this instruction, this encouragement, that we might be patient and steadfast, immovable, that we might fix our hope solely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, Lord, as we suffer, as we endure trials and mistreatment. Help us to receive the example of the prophets and model it. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage begins with a therefore. And when you consider a therefore, you want to see what it's there for. It links most immediately with what came before both thematically with the focus on the final judgment, the return of the Lord, and in regards to the the treatment of brothers, it connects back with the condemnation of the wicked rich. We considered that last week. The wicked rich were guilty of the following. They were storing up for themselves in the last days. They were robbing their workers by not paying them what they'd agreed to pay them. They were living in self-indulgence. They were fattening their hearts for a day of slaughter, and they were condemning and involved in the unrighteous lawsuits against the poor who were not resisting them. And the the furious rebuke of the Lord, who does indeed care about justice in the society, he cares about justice in every sphere, comes against them. In the backdrop of their judgment, be patient, therefore, brothers, Now, I don't think he just has five, one to six in view, but most immediately, but I think you'll see he's tying together the rest of the book, that we're rounding the corner on all the instruction that's been given. I'm tracking the the outline of this paragraph through the imperative verbs, the commands that are given. Um, And so we're going to look at this in three points. Each section notably has a behold. The ESV translates two of them as behold. In verse 7, it's see, same Greek word. So each section has a a director to grab our attention. Look, see, behold something. And the groups of imperative commands clump together. So in verses 7 through 8, the point is to be patient in suffering and trials. And it's just littered over 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See, or behold, how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. 
Establish your heart so the coming of the Lord is at hand. So there the imperative is fundamentally be patient. He gives us reason. He wants us to look at something. And then in verse 9, do not grumble against one another. There's your command, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And then in verses um, 10 and 11, as an example of suffering and patience, and actually the only command here is to take or to receive, that's your blank, receive the example of the prophets. So point one, be patient in sufferings and trials. Point two, do not grumble. Point three, receive the example of the prophets. Let's begin by diving into point one. Now I'm just trying to organize the thought of James here, and it begins with the command itself. Be patient, therefore, brothers. He's addressing, if you remember, the scattered church over Asia Minor, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And what dominates this section in response to the injustice and the wickedness in the world is to be patient. James is a realist. He's well aware the, the wealthy, the powerful can use that power tyrannically. They can oppress and condemn the righteous. They can cause the death of innocent people. God is angry at it. God is furious at it. And yet we saw what characterized the righteous in 5.6 is he does not resist you. And here in keeping with that notion of not returning evil for evil is a call to endurance, suffering, and patience. Command, be patient, therefore, brothers. That's, that's the kind. That's hard. You've heard the saying I say to my kids sometime, hurry up and wait. <laughs> There's evil going around in the world. There will always be evil going around in the world. There will always be oppression and suffering. And not that we should not, where we can, act to end it. But ultimately, our hope is not in the triumph of our means and our power, but in the return of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers. This is the same word that describes the character of authentic love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient and kind. This is the word describing Abraham waiting many long years after the Lord had promised him a descendant. In Hebrews chapter 6, Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. So James writes to Christians being defrauded, robbed, mistreated, dragged into courts, we've already seen that in chapter 2, is telling them their fundamental position is one of waiting. Be patient, therefore, brothers. But he gives us a basis. Wait until what? Till I die? No. The basis is the reality of the Lord's return. Wait until the coming of the Lord. Now, the word here for coming is the Greek word parousia. You may have heard that, the parousia. This is a term that Jesus spoke of first of his return. And the New Testament and the early church begins to adopt it. It's referred frequently in classical Greek to a king's arrival or presentation. Let me give you an example of some passages where Jesus speaks of it. Now, in, when Jesus speaks of it, it's not the return or the coming of the Lord. It's the coming of the Son of Man. But as the early church understood the Son of Man is the Lord, it became the coming of the Lord, which is how James uses it. But in Matthew 24, Jesus speaks of this and a couple of times. In verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, the parousia of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 33. So also when you see these things, you know that he is at the door at the very gates. Matthew 24, 37 to 39. For as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. So they were unaware of the flood and until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So when James says the coming of the Lord, this is, this is a technical, precise term with a clear meaning. This is referring to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as described in the book of Revelation when he shows up on a white horse with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. This isn't some general topic. So we are to be patient until the Lord returns to do battle with his foes and to deliver his people. Paul urges the same patience in 1 Thessalonians 4. For we declare to you by a word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. 
he urges us to be patient. And the reason for that patience is the reality of the Lord's return. And then the notion is this, that the books will be balanced when the Lord returns. We as Christians, of all people, ought to be willing to be patient. We see the injustice in the world. We see the evil in the world. Now, the naturalist, the atheist, if there's no justice in this life, there is no justice. For someone who does not believe in God, I get how the unbeliever can freak out, pull out his hair for justice, because they know that if it doesn't come in this life, it doesn't come at all. And so from a naturalistic standpoint, Joseph Stalin won. There's no way in this life he paid for the massive evil that he did. Pol Pot, others. And so the unbeliever is vexed, knowing that injustice is committed and it's gotten away with. We as believers know there is a coming accounting. There's a coming judgment. This is the basis for why we can give judgment to God. And resist the temptation to reach on our own hand and to take it, because we know there is one who is coming who will judge righteously. That's the logic. When you see evil in the world done, or when it's done to you, be patient, looking to, knowing there will be a recompense. The, the part of you that cries out, this isn't right. The part of you that cries out, this needs to be righted. Judgment is due, is in fact righteous. The unrighteous part is saying, vengeance is mine, and taking it from the Lord. Make room for the wrath of the Lord, the wrath of God. That's Romans 12. So the command is to be patient. The basis of the command is the reality of the Lord's return. And then James directs our attention to help give us a picture of this with his first behold. But the ESV translates as see. And what are we to look at? We're to look at the farmer. Behold how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. In that respect, he's saying, we Christians need to adopt the posture of a farmer. James loves his illustrations, and this is an agricultural one. What's he, what's he pointing at here? Well, notice two things. One, the farmer earnestly desires the harvest. He speaks of it in the text as the precious fruit of the earth. He's waiting for something he wants. So for this analogy to work, then, we believers have to actually want something that's going to happen when Christ returns. Part of the danger of living in a wealthy land and a wealthy time with wealthy people is if I'm not careful in my own heart, I, I, I may wish the Lord would delay his return. Haven't, haven't done the things I wanted to do. I want to see my kids grow up. Haven't been to Disneyland. I want to see the final Avengers movie. <laughs> and so this argument only works if we, like the farmer, view what we're waiting for as precious, as valuable, wanting justice, wanting the Lord to be present with us, wanting him to redeem us and gather us up with him. So for this to work, if, if, if you have a hard time being patient, perhaps it may be because you don't see as valuable what will happen when the Lord returns? The New Testament urges us. Listen to 1 Peter 1.13. This is a command. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully. Not partially, not a little bit, not even a lot. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He knows that will take mental activity and work. We need to be about the business, girding at the loins of our mind, of making sure our hope doesn't drift to other things, but our hope is fully in the grace to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that way, we are like farmers looking for the precious fruit of the earth. So that's the first point of comparison. The farmer earnestly desires the harvest, and, the, and he patiently waits for God to send the rain. The, the point is clear. The farmer does do work. This isn't totally passive, but once he's planted and he's tilled, He's dependent on God, especially in a world before pesticides, in a world before the type of um, irrigation and watering that we have. You, you do your work and you sit back and either it rains or it doesn't rain. This is the perennial prayer request for Israel. This is why in the, in the Sinai covenant, God promises them in Deuteronomy eleven fourteen, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain. 
in the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. In Zechariah 10.1, rain was a matter of prayer. Ask from the Lord in the season of the spring rain for the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone and vegetation in the field. So the farmer, for this comparison to work, he wants the crop coming out of the ground. He wants what he's waiting for. He's eager for it. And then he recognizes there is nothing he can do after a certain point except wait on the Lord sending rain. He's passive at that point. God will send rain or he won't. It'll grow and produce crop or it won't. We then need to desire what will happen when the Lord returns. And we need to need to give it over to God's hands that it will happen in his time when he chooses and not in ours. He then repeats the command, adding a new command. So he's given the command, given until what? Be patient until the Lord comes. Look, see the example of the farmer. Imitate him. You also, like the farmer, be patient. Then he gives a second command. Be patient, establishing your hearts, which is in contrast to what the wicked rich were doing. Remember what the wicked rich were doing with their hearts? They were fattening them, right? Verse 5, you have fattened your hearts. Now, in in their culture, fat doesn't have as negative a connotation as it does now. Um, David can talk about, you've enlarged my heart with fatness. Think, Think of like the best marbled cuts of meat are better than the purely lean cuts of meat. But it does have a notion of softness, of, of abundance, luxury. And we don't want fat hearts. We want ready for action, established, firm hearts. The saints, the persecuted saints, in comparison to the rich, are not fattening their hearts. They're strengthening their hearts. The idea is to establish, to make firm from toppling Jesus speaks using the same word um, to Peter, telling Peter, you're going to fall, and I've prayed for you, right? That your faith may not fail, Luke twenty-two thirty-two. 32. And when you have turned, again, strengthen your brothers, same word. Strengthen your brothers. In 1 Thessalonians three thirteen, Paul's prayer is that he might establish your hearts, strengthen your hearts. And in the context of being patient, it's it's resolve. You're not patient one day and impatient the next, but that you have a settled hope and expectation, a stance waiting for the Lord to do what only he can do, being patient and resolute. The same word is used when Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. Same word, resolved to be patient not accidentally patient. Be patient, establish your hearts. Now here, the basis is nearly the same as the last time, but the distinction is this. In verse 7, be patient until the coming of the Lord. It's simply the reality of the Lord's return. Here, he's emphasizing the nearness of the Lord's return. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's not just that he will return, but he's near returning, which causes us to have to pause and ask a question or two. James wrote this 2,000 years ago, and he said that the Lord, his coming is at hand. And all that generation died. It does not appear the Lord has returned. And 2,000 years take place, and I'm trying to repeat James's command and his rationale to you saying the Lord's return is at hand. Well, what does that, what does that hand mean if 2000 years can take place? So let me take a brief little aside here and try to um, answer that briefly. The first reality we got to set is this. We are in the last days. We are in the last days. The last days were inaugurated with the death, burial, resurrection of the Lord. Um, Peter explaining the gift of the Holy Spirit given at Acts says this, quoting Joel, in the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. So Peter is looking at what's happening around. This is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy about what would happen in the last days. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by his son. But even more clearly, James has just accused the rich of gathering up for themselves in the last days. Look at verse 3. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So what I think is meant by the last days is the epoch, the time period, beginning with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, that lasts, however long it lasts, until he returns. And and the point being, prophetically, there are no other big events we're looking for to happen. The next event on the prophetic calendar is the return of the Lord. This is the last time period. These are the last days. Now, it's important to note, Jesus himself, while on earth, claimed ignorance of the specific day of his return. I don't believe that's true any longer when he no longer humbled himself. But in Mark chapter 13, 32, Mark 13, 32, he says, even the son of man does not know. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Only the Father. One, one helpful passage you can turn there is 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter addresses the delay, or the apparent delay, and he also addresses wrong conclusions to make and right conclusions to make in light of it. 2 Peter 3, just briefly turn there, because if this rationale is to work to motivate us, we've we got to deal with the, with the elephant in the room. 3,000 years on, how is it near? 2 Peter 3, 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with their scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So pause. Whatever we're about to hear that summarizes their line of thinking is bad. It's not to be imitated. It's scoffing and it's following sinful desire. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. So there'll be scoffers who said, Jesus said he'd be right back. He said it'd be soon. James, the other apostles, the writers of scripture appear to think it's at hand and he didn't come. He doesn't keep his word. And that's wicked scoffing. So that ought not to be our conclusion, obviously. But Peter goes on, I believe, to give some uh, help for us here. First, he considers what these scoffers neglect. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by means of these, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. It's interesting. Peter predicts the denial of the flood. Interesting. And Peter predicts the denial of creation. They willfully overlook these things. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So these wicked scoffers are willfully overlooking something, but now he tells us not to overlook something. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. So from that vantage point, it's been two days since the resurrection. And all the point is saying is this, God's timetable and perspective on time does not necessarily match up with yours and mine. Especially when you're in suffering and trial, time seems to go incredibly slowly. But whatever's going on, be sure of this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to some kind of slowness. His, His apparent delay is rather patience towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Paul, Peter addresses the apparent problem of his delay. He identifies the people scoffing and concluding, huh, he said he'd be, they're wicked. He, he helps explain their false thinking and what they willfully overlook. And then he tells us, don't, don't, don't overlook this fact. God's timetable and his view of time is different than yours and mine. He's not delaying. He's being patient. And so I take great comfort in the fact that Peter, 2,000 years ago, nails right on the head the the prominent denials of the scoffing culture. 
Don't, don't let it unnerve you. This is that Babe Ruth moment. He predicts exactly the line of attack and reasoning that the scoffing, unbelieving mind will come at these predictions. So to conclude, we are in fact living in the last days. And the Lord can return at any moment. He, he may return in the middle of this message. There's nothing stopping that from happening other than the sovereign good pleasure of God. And yet, we cannot know the day of the hour. We cannot claim to have reached a knowledge greater than the Lord Jesus on earth. And we cannot expect our timetable to be God's timetable. And so, we, just as the first generation of Christians living that James is writing to, need to live and expect the Lord could return at any time. There are parables written about people who neglect and say, no, there's time, there's time. And they get drunk and they beat the slaves. And they're not found faithful when the master returns. So even though we're 2,000 years on, we are living in the last days. And we, think of it this way, flip it around. How much more should we be looking for the Lord's return 2,000 years on than those in James's circumstance? Okay? So that's what I believe is understood. And I believe that's consistent across the New Testament's treatment of the Lord's return. We are in the last days. The Lord could return at any moment. We are to live expectantly that way, even though we don't know when he'll return. It might not be in my lifetime. It may not be for another thousand years, but it might be in three seconds. And we are to expect and look for it. And that expectation and that longing look is meant to empower us to be patient. The Lord is saying, looking for, hoping for, anticipating the return of the Lord will enable us to be resolute, will enable us to be patient in suffering. So there's a real practical reality to this doctrine. The implication, our confidence, our hope, our joy in the return of the Lord will be tied to our perseverance and patience. Okay, that's, that's be patient in suffering and trials. The basis is the nearness of the Lord's return. Second command and second example, do not grumble. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Command, don't grumble against one another. And the basis is so that you will not be judged. The basis is so that you will not be judged. So I think what James is considering is this. He's already considered that in trials... We might grumble against God. You remember chapter 1, verse 13, let no one say when he's being tested, I am being tempted by God. And in a book that's measuring our faithfulness in three spheres, our speech is one of them. If anyone thinketh himself to be religious and bridleth, I, I memorized it in the King James when I was a kid, bridleth not his own tongue, but deceives his own heart, that man's religion is in vain. So how we speak in trials evidences our faith or lack of it. And we've already been told in chapter 1, verse 13, you, you better not be railing against blaming God for your trials. I think in the last verse of last week, verse 6, the not resisting is in keeping with Jesus' teaching of turning of a cheek, returning a blessing for cursing and not a cursing, not resisting an evil man. They don't so we're not to be railing against them. Well, the third potential is to complain and rail against each other in the community. Not everyone's experiencing trials of the same degree at the same time. And it's easy when things are hard for you to look at someone else and complain, to grumble, to groan, to get frustrated and angry. And so that is now prohibited as well. In our trials, we ought not to be railing against God, railing against our enemies, or railing against each other but being patient, looking for the Lord's return. God cares about how we speak. Think of how many times in this letter, how we speak has been emphasized, and particularly how we speak in trial. It, it matters. You have the opportunity in trials to give God great glory and praise or to undermine your profession of faith. Now here, what's the basis? Why ought we not to grumble against each other? So that we will not be judged. This is a theme James has already brought up. If you turn back to chapter 2, James has already declared the reality that Christians will face a judgment of a sort. And so often when we emphasize our total, complete forgiveness 
by God and Jesus Christ, we, we fail to consider the reality that there still will be a reckoning and a judgment, not a judgment of heaven or hell, but a judgment that can still be described as escaping as though through fire. Look at how James motivates us in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. There's a command. I'm to speak as somebody, you're to speak as somebody who will be judged by the law of liberty. Um, Jesus made it clear every idle word will be accounted for. And if we deny the reality of this judgment of Christ, not a judgment of wrath and discipline, but of reward, but still one that we should take seriously and be fearful of, fearful in the sense of taking it soberly, not lightly. And here it's really clear. Do not grumble. Why not? Because we won't be judged. I don't want to be judged for grumbling when I stand before Christ. You ought not to want to be judged for grumbling when you stand before Christ. That's the clear rationale of this passage, basis so that we will not be judged, so that we will not be judged. Okay? Now we get the behold, the behold. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now this is actually picking up on a figure of speech Jesus used, I believe, in uh, Mark 13, 29, Jesus used that expression, the standing at the door language. When you see these things, know that he is near at the very gates, door, same Greek. The Greek's identical. Matthew 24, 33. So also when you see these things, know that he is near at the very gates. And Mark 13, 29 know that he is near at the very gate. So, so James is again, I think, evidencing familiarity with and dependence on Jesus. This is a, a, a figure of speech Jesus used referring to the second coming. And now James is using it. And he tells us the judge is standing at the door. Now, if we're being faithful, that should be encouraging. We've been t- the wicked have been told, be scared, weep and wail because the judge is at the door. Here, be patient. The judge is at the door. Don't grumble against each other, brothers. The judge is at the door. And what we learn then is God's imminent judgment motivates us by fear. That's the most immediate motivation here. The Bible gives us plenty of motivations for obedience. And if we try to say there's only one motivation, people will sometimes say, we do it for gratitude or we do it because we love him. Amen. And there are times when I do it because I'm thankful. And there are times where I obey because I'm scared. And that says it should be too. That says it should be too. There are other times rewards put out in front of us as a motive. In fact, that's my next blank. God's imminent judgment motivates us by reward. But here, clearly, you better watch out. Better not grumble against each other. You're going to be judged, and the judge is near. The judge is very near. God's imminent judgment motivates us by fear. God's imminent judgment also motivates us by reward, by reward. Listen to 1 Peter 1, 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One other reason you and I should ought to be faithful is so that when Christ returns and our works are tested, the genuine testedness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, and glory, and honor. I hope you want praise, honor, praise, glory, and honor to be found in your faith at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the rationale. The Lord's coming judgment can serve to motivate us both by way of fear and by way of reward. Third point, I'm going to move on here. So the first, just be patient. Settle it in your minds. Gird up your strength in your hearts. Be patient. Be patient like a farmer. Second, resist the temptation of taking the pressure that you're feeling out on those around you, especially those who you perceive to have it easier than you. 
don't grumble against each other. The judge is at the door. The judge is at the door. Third, receive the example of the prophets. Receive the example of the prophets. That's the only imperative here in verse 10 and 11. As an example of sufferings and patience, brothers, take the prophets. The word take means to receive. I mean, in one sense, you have it. You have a Bible in front of you. You have the record. And I think what he means by receive is to own, to not resist, but to receive it. You may wonder why so much of the Bible is written about times and places before the Lord Jesus came. Listen to this startling declaration. Turn, turn actually, turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. It's an absolutely remarkable claim. If you've ever been tempted to think that the book of Deuteronomy and the Tabernacle Code and Leviticus, really, what's the point? What does that mean to me? I'm not an Israelite living under the law. Let me show you what 1 Corinthians 10 has to say. Absolutely remarkable. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 5, he speaks about the experience of the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, writing to Corinthians, after the resurrection of Jesus, he writes this in verse 6. These things took place as an example for us. Think about that. The, the rebellion in the wilderness the judgment, the fiery serpents, the generation that died. Why is this generation of Israelites dying in the wilderness? Well, one answer is there are some people who are going to be alive in about a thousand years or so in Corinth who need to learn something. That's why. These things, no, notice that there's two things. They took place and they were written. Both staggering claims. Why did the events themselves happen? These things took place as an example for us. The events of the Old Testament took place as an example for you and for me. Then he goes on to say that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's peor, a mass cultic orgy. Why did that happen? So we could learn things. Is one answer that's true. People sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual morality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Why were Israelites destroyed by serpents? So the Corinthian believers, they needed to learn something. God wanted to give them an example. That's why. I'm not saying that's the fullness of the answer. God was probably doing 22,000 things in that. But one of the things he truly was doing is giving an example, providing an example for us. These things happened for our instruction. Now look at verse 11. He says it again and even more strongly. Now these things happened to them as an example. Why were they written down? Why did Moses record these events? Moses didn't realize he was serving the Corinthians, but he was. Moses didn't realize he was serving us, but he was. They are written down for our instruction. The entire Bible is yours and written for you. On whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And that's when you get this verse here. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And in the context, that verse means you will find examples in the Old Testament for you of every trial and every temptation you face. It's not unique to you. God has given us example after example after example for our instruction. Okay? And so one of the things we see here back in James is that the lives of the prophets occurred for our instruction. And I want you to think through the prophets and did they have prosperity lives? No, they did not. The prophets, by and large, suffered, were mistreated, were martyred. Jesus summarizes the entire prophetic legacy in this way in Luke eleven forty nine. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, 
I will send you prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. What Jesus says characterizes the prophets is they were killed. Their blood was shed. The author of Hebrews summarizes in this way. Hebrews 11, 36. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, likely the prophet Isaiah. Um, the, the Jewish tradition is he hid in a log, hollowed out log, and he was found and they sawed it in two. He was not experiencing his best life now. Men of whom the world was not worthy. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts, mountains, and in dens and caves. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So you can learn a lot from the prophets, but one of the things you're to learn as you look at their lives is to learn how to suffer patiently. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So the first point we've just looked at, they are to teach us. They're to do more than that, but they are at least to teach us how to suffer patiently. You think about Moses putting up with these grumbling people and then not even able to go into the land. Think of Ezekiel lying on his side for a year. Think of Jeremiah weeping and broken as he watches his national capital overrun and demolished. The prophets give us an example of patient suffering, but they also demonstrate how God uses such suffering. We get that for the phrase, they spoke in the name of the Lord. These men who suffered patiently also spoke in the name of the Lord. Briefly, we got time. Go to 1 Peter 2. And of course, who is the greatest prophet? Prophet like Moses. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to look at the example of this prophet given us in 1 Peter 2. About suffering. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is we, we, when we encounter suffering, act like it's some strange, foreign thing. Lord, why would this happen? We need to understand this is the dominant theme God's people and what we ought to expect. Rather, a lack of suffering should surprise us. Let me, let me read this to you. 1 Peter 2, pick it up in verse 19. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now look at verse 21. For to this, what's the this? Suffering unjustly. To this, you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Receive, my brothers, the example of the prophets. Here's the greatest prophet. And what example did he give? He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now, the argument here is Jewish. It's no greater to the lesser. The argument being, who is the most innocent man ever falsely accused? It's Jesus. Which means when people speak evil against us, to some degree, we deserve it. And so if Jesus, who is perfectly innocent, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He was looking to the justice of God, which is exactly what James is calling us to do. Look to the justice that comes when the Lord returns. How did Jesus endure the mockery and the shame and the mistreatment? It wasn't by saying it doesn't matter. He cared greatly about his righteousness. Rather, my father in his time will judge justly, and I am content with that. And that is why he didn't reach out his own hand and take justice into it. 
but he will wait for his enemies to make a footstool for him. Behold, now we get to our behold, so they demonstrate how God uses such suffering. They demonstrate how God uses such suffering. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. What's James getting at? He's getting at, I think, what he's already taught us. What blessing is there in remaining steadfast? By the way, notice James is now coming back to his very first theme in the book. I'll show you the blessings for remaining steadfast. Look at chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces, oh, there's our word, steadfastness. Trials is how God produces steadfastness. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Well, what good is steadfastness? Verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Steadfastness in the short term produces maturity and completeness. Why, is, why do we consider those blessed who remain steadfast? They become mature and complete. They become mature and complete. This is how God matures and completes his people. You talk to saints who are mature and you ask them to give their testimony. What you don't hear is things started getting really easy. That was when I started to grow. That's not the testimony they give. They give testimony of being cast upon the Lord, stretched beyond their ability, forced to trust God in ways they had not before, being brought to the ends of themselves again and again and again. This is how God grows his people, not through take your ease, fatten your heart, grow, but rather through trial. And so we consider those blessed to remain steadfast because they, mature, they will become mature and complete. But look at 112, almost echoing these two verses together here. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. I mean, get that. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast under trial. Why, James? For when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life. And when we looked at that passage, we understood the crown, which is life. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Why? He goes to heaven. That's what James is saying here. When your faith is tested, it's either proven to be genuine Back to 1 Peter. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it perishes, is tested by fire, may found result in praise, glory, and honor through revelation of Jesus Christ. Or your faith can be tested and shown to be false. Your faith can be tested and shown to be a counterfeit. James considers that in chapter 2. No, the real McCoy perseveres under trial. It may falter, but it gets back up. Christ holds his fast. And so James has already declared this blessing, this blessedness for those who persevere. Then he's going to give us a concrete example. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. I'm going to have to not turn to Job, but summarize here. I think it's interesting. He says, you've heard and you've seen. The hearing is clear. You just read Job. You hear of Job's steadfastness. In one day, not prompted by any evil thing that Job had done, he lost his entire wealth and possession. This man was rich. I mean, very rich. His possessions were so great, armies were needed to take them from him. When an, when, it's going to take an army to get your camels and your cattle. You're rich. But moreover, all of his children in one day died. And yet, chapter 1 reports to us, when Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Receive the example of Job. God takes all your children. He does you no wrong. Oh, it'll hurt. <laughs> he did that to me. I would rip my clothes, pour out my heart, but God would do me no wrong. Job is an example. We've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And then as you read the book, you see the purpose of the Lord. 
Job's not as explicit in God's purpose, but it's there to be seen. And even in that trial, God is good, and he's faithful, and he's merciful. Even as Job walks up to the brink of blasphemy, kind of wish I had an attorney so I could take God to court. I think I got a valid point. I can't call him to court, but I kind of wish I could. God is patient with him. God is merciful to him. And through his suffering, Job speaks. I think Job is satisfied in heaven, in glory now with the Lord, to go through this suffering knowing how the record of it has encouraged his people, that he is inscripturated. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The light switch has just dipped. Please, thank you. Alma, I thought that might be a sign, like Zeb was trying to show me. Okay, we're, all, we're almost done here. We really are almost done. But God is merciful. And so Job, Job stretches us. You read Job and you realize God does nothing wrong to Job. That's part of the point of Job. But we also see God is ultimately merciful to Job. Because as Job begins to founder, he begins to justify himself, God would be righteous in judging him, but God comes and gently rebukes him. I mean, it's a rebuke. Stand up and answer me. But it's not wrath. It's counsel. And ultimately, Job is restored. His goods are returned to him. The Lord gives him children again. And we see the purpose of the Lord. This gives us some, inter- if you're struggling with the book of Job, this is some interpretive guidance. You're meant, when you read Job, to see God's good purpose is compassionate and merciful. And you're meant to receive the example of Job, meaning, in other words, you, you need to gird yourself up that you might, by God's grace, if you were put in such an awful trial, speak as he spoke, and not as his wife encouraged him to speak. By the way, notice Satan left his wife alive. I think he figured, because our counsel is curse God and die. The second round, when, God, when, when Satan takes his health from him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Receive the example of Job. And learn from it that even in horrendous and horrific trial, God's purposes are good and merciful. If the Lord's not returning as quickly as you like, he has a good reason. He has a merciful reason. Don't take Vengeance, leave it to the Lord, wait for his coming.